Everyone can relate to grief of losing a loved one. But grief of losing your homeland, you don't realize how much you've lost until you stop and think about it. Es como destruir nuestro corazón. It's like we're all implicated by admitting that the way we live is causing a catastrophe. If this land hurts, we hurt. This culture is so unbelievably fucked. It's time for a revolution. The thing with climate change, it's not like there's been one death and then we grieve it. This is continuous. We need to tell the truth. We can't hide things just because it's not hopeful. Will my grandchildren's eyes still be able to see what I see? Estamos en un punto muy, muy crítico. The will to act is itself a renewable resource. When I talk to people about this, they always say, we need to have hope, otherwise we won't do anything. And we can't just tell these negative stories. And, and, we, and we need to tell the positive stories. No, we need to tell the truth. We, we, we can't hide things just because it's not hopeful. It's like people they can't do anything without hope. I used to think hope was a belief in the possibility of a better, even a beautiful future. But I've learned that kind of hope is no friend of mine. It distracts me from what's right in front of me and blinds me from what is heading in my direction. So now I understand hope is found in this moment. What I choose to do now, that is all I have. What we each have. Hello and welcome to Climactic. It's Mark Spencer here, publisher of the Climactic Collective, and I'm doing another one-take intro to today's episode. What you've just been listening to for the last couple minutes has been a couple moments from the film The Magnitude of All Things. This is a documentary film that was released in 2020 and is now available in a few festivals, film festivals, happening around the world. That includes New Zealand's own Dock Edge Film Festival, where it's available for online viewing. And today's episode is a originally going to be <laughs> episode of Artbreaker. 
which is the show on the Climactic Collective that takes a look at the art we make in response to and in engagement with the climate crisis. It's still going to be that, but the version I have for you today here on the Climactic feed and also on the Climactic Candid feed is the full length or the the more full version of a conversation with the director of that film and also the composer of the film. The Magnitude of All Things is a gorgeous cinematic look at the grief we feel when confronting the climate crisis and also a conversation about hope. What does real hope look like in the face of this monumental, staggering, horrifying, overwhelming thing that is the climate crisis? And how might we learn some lessons from cancer and the process that many of us have seen loved ones go through or that ourselves have experienced when facing a cancer diagnosis? In many ways, our planet has a cancer diagnosis, and sadly, that cancer isn't a unthinking, uncaring malignancy in our genes, but it is us. It is the caring, mostly, thinking, conscious, us, the plurality of our species. It's an amazing film, and this is, um, without being overwrought, it's the best conversation I've had in the space of the climate community. Jen and Rob were so generous in what they engaged with me about, generous in their giving of advice to future filmmakers and composers in how to make climate-engaged art, and I can't wait to bring the Artbreaker version of this episode to you. But please don't let that distract from or take away from this version you're about to hear. And yes, this is a long episode, but it truly is worth it. You will hear some natural accompaniment to the episode, and when it gets made into an Artbreaker episode, you'll hear a lot more of Rob's score. You'll hear more of the film than you've heard at the little intro. Uh, But this natural accompaniment is actually natural. (laughs) This is birdsong from Jen's home. It's being picked up perfectly on her laptop mic. Here's what it sounds like right now. Listen out for that in the course of the episode. Focus on that if it's getting heavy, and I look forward to seeing you on the other side. And back here again on Climactic for more climate-engaged episodes coming to you very soon. All right, let's get started. It's our pleasure. I was just saying I was so looking forward to talking uh, with Rob about this. We've not had the opportunity to debrief or living on different continents. (laughs) Well, it's a lot easier to describe now that the film is made than before, (laughs) because ultimately... You know, the magnitude of all things tells two parallel narratives. One one story is, is that of my sister um, coming to terms with her own mortality and, and ultimately her death and my grief about that. And then the other narrative uh, is really the story of our species <laughs> very generally and the way that we are dealing with the magnitude of the climate crisis 
on an emotional level. So the psychological and emotional dimensions of the climate crisis. Jen and I connected over email, I think maybe around the time that I'd written an article about climate grief in The Guardian in Australia. And, and I'd found out from a friend through that article that Jen was making this film and I was and I thought, fantastic, and I'm a composer for film and TV, so I just wrote to her and shamelessly plugged my, my stuff at the same time as introducing and being interested in the film itself. And then from there, I think Jen and I just started you know, chatting and sending each other music and what she was thinking about the film, and, and then it kind of evolved from there that we started working together. So you reached out to Jennifer about the film, but how did you hear about the film after writing the article in The Guardian? Yeah, well, a, th a friend of mine who had read the article um, mentioned that she'd actually met Jen as she was filming in Australia um, because she'd also written something about climate grief many years earlier. That that's how I sort of came in touch with this friend. So, you know, the, all, these, all these connections coming through <laughs> this topic. And then I think, um, yeah, she passed me on Jen's email. I got in touch. Jen was back in Canada and she was, you know, I think post-filming at that stage. So... It was um, just, you know, good timing, I suppose, to make that connection. Coincidentally, a few people also had sent me your article. Right. <laughs> right. So <laughs> it was this confluence of events, I think, that brought us together. I think confluence is a, a word that runs through this whole production. It was so great to see so many Australian characters, not, not of course, characters like they're not real people, but, you know, individual people from Australia in your film and... And I say not characters because I happen to know a large number of them, which took me completely by surprise because the the figures you have in the film, if I didn't know any of them, they would all seem to me like members of the pantheon of climate engaged, like climate leadership. Of course, Greta and people on the, the negative or skeptical side of climate change like to denigrate Greta as, you know, St. Greta as this you know, second coming of Joan of Arc, all us you know, following some childlike saint savior figure. And I definitely would be more prone to that. Not that I would be completely, but I'd be more prone to it if it wasn't also Greta along with my friend Joe, you know, my friend Beth. And and it's just, for me, it's, it's an amazing film. It's just showing that all these people that we hear a lot about in climate change are themselves just people getting by and getting along. And uh, one really striking thing, sorry, I'll get to a question, Jennifer, is like the decision to not put in a lot of marches and strikes and protests and people talking into bullhorns. Was that a kind of a conscious decision on your part to show these people who are quite well known for climate action as sort of individuals and in quiet moments rather than in the middle of the action? Yeah, it, it is a conscious decision. So... Two things there, I'd say. You know, one is that it was very important for me to actually go to the front lines of some climate crises. Obviously, you can't go everywhere uh, because there's so many. But I really wanted to profile uh, unheard voices or frequently marginalized and disenfranchised voices on the climate front lines. Uh, the people who are uh, bearing so much of the suffering of the climate crisis already, who frequently, as we all know, um, contributed to it very little. So it was very important to me to go and ask those people how they are feeling, right? And that is a question which is actually quite unusual for them to hear. 
And so that's really what I wanted to do. And that's a very different kind of approach, obviously, than, uh, you know, profiling the, the Bill McGibbons or, or those, you know, the other uh, climate leaders. It, it's not as if I, I don't respect them greatly, but really, you know, in a feature documentary, you have quite a short period of time. And every, for me, every frame, every a fraction of a frame I, I pay attention to and it needs to serve a purpose and when you're making a film about this unique perspective or at the time that I started the film it was fairly unique in that most people really didn't know what um, ecological grief was now it's certainly more in the public discourse but you know I really so Greta we you know for example she's obviously one of the highest profile climate leaders ever uh, but she very publicly discusses her depression and her ecological grief so she's a very um, you know she was somebody that I gravitated to immediately but others are are people that are not as well known um, but who had the courage to speak openly and uh, with honesty and uh, intimacy about how they were feeling and those emotions range from grief to, to anger to despair to hope um, and you know displays of extraordinary resilience so mm. let me know if this is too reductive or if this is wrong but like most climate engaged media is about what climate change is and it's about what to do about it and and as you said this film is much more about how people feel and how they're engaging with climate change so is that kind of a fair kind of point of difference to draw between this film and a lot of other work in the space where those are about what and why? That's what I should have said before, is, is the why of why is climate change happening and what to do about it? This is much more how do you feel? Yes, I think that's accurate, except I would sort of temper it slightly because I reached the conclusion independently and then had that conclusion um, reinforced by people whose um, discipline this actually is that you know the reason that we haven't made substantive progress on the climate front is because we have really in many ways struggled to come to terms with it so you know there's obviously the overt deniers and that's one form of denial but there's another form of denial which you know it's just such a difficult wicked problem to wrap your heart and mind around the scale and violence of the climate crisis the actual end of the world as we know it I'm not saying the world will end but as we know it that is ending so it's just such a difficult um, thing to come to terms with that that I would say that that is partially to blame for our ineptitude in actually tackling the crisis. That in addition to all of the vested interests and corporate interests that are tied to the fossil fuel industry and to polluting and to carbon emissions. Um, so, you know, while it definitely the magnitude of all things is not about what and why, I do believe it contributes to what we do to solve the crisis because the first step in solving the crisis is actually turning towards it, admitting it, coming to terms with the scale and the violence.
Canada, feature documentaries take a long time to raise the money if you're successful at raising the money at all. So, you know, I had the idea for the film, I believe it was about eight years prior to actually finishing the film. And a lot of that time uh, was spent fundraising with my co-producers, Andrew Williamson and Henrik Myers, and the NFB came on board pretty early um, with Shirley Veracruze as our producer there. But I um, sort of got esconded because I, one of the filmmakers behind the film, The Corporation, that came out in 2003, and I was in the midst of making magnitude and then this idea of doing a sequel to the corporation arose which i at first was very much against uh, but then i got esconded onto it and so really magnitude was interrupted and its production schedule got pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed because we were making uh, the new corporation but we are our, our filming schedule was really from January till May 2019 and in that time we burnt a lot of carbon but you know and I know that um, but I I consciously decided that was for the greater good hopefully ultimately uh, resulting in less carbon but it's always a dilemma so from January to May we visited 10 climate front lines four continents you know we were we were in Queensland uh, with literal uh, monsoon rains when Townsville was uh, flooded right at that time and just right after and then we that's when we did our Australia trip I actually did up two Australia trips because I did a research trip to Australia but from Australia we were we went to Nanutsuvut which was minus 35 degrees so sort of plus four plus 40 to minus 35 and anyway we were we were hopping all over the place um, and it's a good thing too because we actually did fim finish filming before the pandemic hit and so I was in post-production uh, and Rob and I were working on the music we started working on the music really early on uh, but the pandemic sort of hit after we started filming so really COVID didn't impact production or post-production that much other than you know obviously you know on online editing we were social distanced or I was on Salt Spring Island just editing alone and didn't matter because Rob and I we weren't about to get together anyway with Rob being in Australia although that would have been really nice uh, but what it COVID did impact greatly has has been the release obviously I think the process sort of began where I might have sent um, Jen a bunch of, of music that I'd already made but she also had made this sort of curated Spotify playlist music that she'd been listening to in the context of this film and that was one of the nice things about working with Jen because you know sometimes you can be working with a director where you've got very different musical aesthetics and you're like oh, I don't know how this is going to work but everything Jen was sending me I was I was really loving so that was a really good really good start but I think from there you know that allowed the kind of aesthetic of the music to kind of narrow down a little bit because um, that's quite a bit overwhelming when you first start making a film kind of landing on what sort of instruments and things can take a long time but I think we started around September and and then really sort of the chunk of the work was during that sort of black summer period for me and I think that was the the kind of the weird experience about making this was that it's you know outside my window it was very smoky and and I was you know coughing a lot because of this so much smoke in the air we were well away from the fires but everyone in southeast Australia was experiencing the same 
levels of air pollution. Um, so that real ominous feeling sort of was, was sitting there during the making of the music. Can you hear that in the music you made during that time? It's sort of hard to extract that from my own experiences of climate grief and climate change because it's something that I've also worked on for many, many years. And I think it was just a kind of, yeah, it was it was kind of nice in a way, in a strange kind of way to have that there because it was really bringing it home and bringing it into the forefront. And that kind of allowed the, you know, everything to rise up to the surface, which is what you kind of want as a musician to be feeling these things pretty raw, I suppose. So what was it like, the contrast of, of scoring the footage from a, a familiar looking, like a, a similar kind of place to your own home in, in Castlemaine, or just outside of Castlemaine, to, to say, you know, Joe's story in, in Tathra and Biga, compared to, say, composing for the footage of the Amazon? Part of the process of the film was it, we actually, I actually composed a lot of music before even seeing any of the edits. So I think, um, you know, that, that process can be different every time you do a, a film. But I think probably the way that Jen and I were working was just sort of creating lots of music and sort of getting, you know, comments back from Jen about, um, you know, what she liked and didn't like or what, what would work and what wouldn't work. So I was quite a way into it before I think I saw the first cut that Jen had sent me. And then over time, we sort of shape that up as the edit gets more and more finalized. So I think the, the scenery, I don't think that was too much of an issue, but it is interesting when you're working on a film that has uh, landscapes and scenes from across the world in so many different places, because it does shape the instruments you end up choosing and the, the textures and the sounds in, in subtle ways. And I think, um, you know, listening back to it now, it wasn't a conscious decision at the time, but there are lots of different elements that are kind of seeped in that kind of, I think... Is slightly representative of these different regions in the world without being too overt and without being, you know, we didn't put panpipes from the Amazon, for example, but there's things that, that the Amazon and the Greenland area sort of brings into it that I think was quite interesting to reflect on. Was that a specific discussion saying no panpipes? Yeah, I think Jen might have mentioned that at one point, which was fine because, you know, right on where I was at too, but I think it's just that fine line that you tread where you're trying to, you know, make something that sounds sonically appropriate without it being, you know, too sort of contrived or thinking back on it there's things like there's there's a lot of this sort of n almost nordic strings or strings that are slightly off pitch which i really like um you hear this a lot in a lot of these sort of nordic noir films like the bridge and, and that but there's also there's also a lot of it in australian sort of early colonial music and canadian music as well where there's you know warren ellis does a lot of it in nick cave and i think that kind of for me thinking back on that it, it has a, a sort of homesick element to it and i think part of it why it worked in this film perhaps was that sort of, you know, loss of home and loss of place that what they might call solastalgia is, is a word for it, I think. But that's sort of interesting to, to reflect back on how these different textures sort of came in and how they relate. Was it a bigger driver then rather than the locality that was being shown and the scenery, like you said, was it instead a bigger driver to the choice of the music and the actual scoring of the music that it matches the human emotion and the, the story that's being told rather than the scenery that's being showed. I think this is another fine line that, you know, you've got to tread carefully as a composer is, is um, you know, you want to hold those emotions in the space and kind of carry them through multi through scenes, but you don't you don't want to be too manipulative. You don't want to be kind of too too forceful with those. And I think Jen and I talked about that very early on. Um, and, and Jen, you know, Jen shaped a lot of the instrumentation in this, I think, just by, you know, sort of, talking through ideas about the sort of elements she wanted there was sort of a, a probably I think you were thinking something around the female voice being quite dominant throughout which it is and then there's also a lot of body percussion and sort of you know organic sort of sounds like that where 
um, relating back, I suppose, to that sense of, 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 I don't know, people power or whatever you want to call that, but it's sort of this, um, there's this, a lot of that kind of, you know, organic sort of percussion-y things happening throughout as well. It's funny that that choice of word, if I could just quickly say that, like, saying people power as in, like, you know, powered by a person, it was very much getting away from the the systems and the organizing and, like, the mass mobilization stuff, but instead, like, the personal, like, the actual, like, you know, these are sounds you can make by yourself out in the woods kind of thing, you know, and I, I, I thought that was really beautiful. That's a nice way to think about it. I think, you know, the sound of one hand clapping and then you, and you've got layers of the same person clapping and all of a sudden it becomes more powerful than it. And it was. It's a nice sort of, you know, metaphor there. But all I have to do is find yeah. a cave with a good echo and you can That's do it right. too. <laughs> well, because I edited the film and sound designed the film, so I'm, you know, really hands on in working with Rob's music. Um, and we had all those discussions Rob's uh, referenced. In addition, I would say for me, in terms of sound design, I also was trying to give the earth a voice. And so I think that's there in the music and I think also in the sound design, if you like some of this, which are, I mean, there's, if you, if you look at the, if you listen carefully, uh, the sound design draws on sound effects from horror films, because in some ways this is a horror film, but it also sort of has these deep guttural sounds, which I place like, for example, during the Kapok tree, which is a sacred tree in the Amazon. Uh, but so for me, that, you know, that's very much part of the, the sound design. And Rob's music and those organic sounds within many of the tracks just, to me, work so well um, in this fluid way together to, to give... And people have commented on that. A few people have said, yeah, the earth has a voice here. And and that's really gratifying for me, for people that um, have have got that from the film. Until you said it, I didn't realize it. I have got it in my notes here to ask about some of the, the elements to the instrumentation. And I definitely picked yeah. up on the, the human element I was going to ask about. Uh, I definitely picked up on human breathing quite a bit and some hand claps. But I was going to ask about the wind chimes. I didn't think about wind chimes as the voice of of nature, as the voice of the wind. Wind chimes for me as memory takes us back. Uh, but there are, for example, dragon wings is a sound effect that's used quite a lot in the film, and yet there are no dragons. I'm quite a, I, I'm a big fan of non-diegetic sound. <laughs> But if you were to look at the actual descriptions of all the sound effects to you, it's a little, it would be quite funny. <laughs> but you get that yes. cut, you know, the, the subtitled SFX. You get that secret cut. from me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I, that was one of the, you know, reasons that I, I loved working with Rob so much was I just feel there's quite a lot of unusual elements in the music and the sound design generally. Like those organic elements, uh, this melancholy feel, uh, this sort of, it feels in many ways to me a very internal experience. Like I also love um, pulling down all diegetic sound and then amping up sort of internal sounds like heartbeats and, and uh, breath that Rob was willing to. And actually not only that, 
very often initiated ideas that totally works with that approach. There, there was also an instrument called an Imbira as well, which was used a lot in the memory sequences or the flashback sequences, whatever you call that, those sorts of moments in the film. I think I've got it here actually, but it's just that sort of, that sort of sound. A neighbour across the paddock from where I live actually made that for me. Those sorts of things when you kind of bring them in and, and then mix them with other types of instruments and then they, they find a little you know, place of their own. They, they kind of start to get attached to certain characters without you kind of being too conscious about it without it being a motif or anything but i think it's um there were sort of lots of other elements that came in like the ron rocco which is my favorite instrument seems to turn up everywhere in everything that i do it's an argentinian string instrument and works really well across everything this um, is your, your second appearance on a climactic show and the second mention of the ron the rocco. second mention of a ron rocco yes and i i think i need to be buried with it but lots of strings as i mentioned lots of uh, female voice from some friends that live locally felicity and emily Piano, this first time I actually composed, I actually scored something for piano, which was really hard because I don't normally, normally I make everything myself and record everything myself. I'm not very good at piano. So I sort of had to reach out to um, Luke Howard, who's an amazing pianist in Australia. And he, um, he was amazing. You know, I sent him a score and he turned it around in, in half a day, basically, just <laughs> sent it straight back to me. So no, I should have made it harder, but um, no, it was great. And that sort of, you know, the learning curve as well that instrument there that's played with your thumbs yeah it's a thumb piano some people will call it in west african and as soon as you started to play it, it, it the images exactly where it is that and also that's that's sort of Saley's instrument so for the real lay person you know the way we've we've seen this in where we're used to it in pop culture if for for other star wars nerds like myself the idea of characters having scores and we you know when they're on screen there is their their score, their theme playing. So you know that this this current bit of the film is related to that character. Um, this is the type of film that that spoke to that quite well because you had you know after the initial act and you you met all your cast of characters, they then proceeded to be interwoven and pop back up over the rest of the course of the film. I, I didn't notice if that was an element, so it must have been either too subtle or I only watched the film once so far. But it, it, was yeah. there that kind of scoring? For individual people beyond Sealy? You know, looking back on it, it happened, and I don't think it was conscious, but like things like I think Jen pointed out, there's, a, there's like a Greta's theme. There was a sort of melody there that associated with Greta that ended up sort of morphing and being a variant in a lot of other melodies throughout the film for other people. So there was sort of moments, I think, that you could look back and analyze it if you were going to do that. But I think for me, it's much more intuitive and, and not a conscious thing that you go about doing. But even though I love love when composers do that you know like i'm a big fan of twin peaks and angelo Badalamenti, and that's a he that's a classic example of where those motifs are attached to characters but um, well question yeah. for filmmakers and composers yeah would you would you recommend that or would you would you do not dissuade people preemptively from that approach if they're making a film uh look i think everyone i think a lot of composers i know write music on score as well and i don't do that and i think that's the difference if you if, you, if you're someone that writes things out you can it's a much more sort of intellectual exercise to begin with I think where you can make those decisions but for me it's just I sit down with instruments and play and see what happens so it doesn't really work for me to do it that way and I actually get a bit freaked out if a director sort of asks me outright to create you know motifs for this character and that character it's I feel a bit confronting but that's cool seeing how the sausage gets made Jennifer have you ever asked for that in a film before that kind of per character score no I don't think my process is that deliberate I'm very hands-on and experimental 
and also, you know, I really trust my gut and I just, like Rob was saying, you know, I just try things and then try them over and over again in, in, an, in a way that would probably drive most people completely crazy, but that's the joy of working mostly alone. I can only drive myself crazy. <laughs> I just refine and refine and refine and whittle and whittle and whittle and experiment and experiment and experiment until it works for me. And I, I really deeply, deeply trust my response to things. And so it's not premeditated. I mean, some things obviously are premeditated, but the actual sort of decisions around what music or what images, that's, that's really a, a process of experimentation. You're choosing the next brick based on the, the bricks that are already there and assembled. And I guess like there's a lot of metaphor you could use, but I, I really like that idea of you're, you're whittling away rather than you're kind of like an, an architect and designing it all before anything is placed. Well, I think that's the nature of most documentary films. They're, they're made, they're written in the edit suite. I mean, I always like to refer to the corporation. I mean, I, I co-directed that film, but I also edited it from 400 hours of footage. So when we, when I say whittling, you know, I'm talking about, okay, the first rough cut was literally 34 hours based on 700 pages of transcripts, which I then literally for a year whittled until I found the narrative structure. Maybe, so, there maybe you go. ice carving. Ice carving an iceberg is a better metaphor. Maybe. Yeah, We've got an expression here in New Zealand of bush bashing. And then you get down to the whittling once all the foliage is cleared away. Oh, man. Um, so from eight years to the film being finished, when you had decided on making the film, what was kind of the state of climate-engaged filmmaking at that point? Like, who who were you looking at as a as a example of who was doing good in the space, good filmmaking? The film is definitely described and really, I think, embodies a cinematic approach to climate change that I haven't, hadn't yet seen before. It's really a gorgeous, gorgeous film. So was there anyone in this space kind of doing work at that level uh, before you started? I would say that I really felt there was, in terms of climate change films, most really were trying to, you know, one, wake people up to the catastrophe and to leave them with a sense that there was still hope despite this extraordinary catastrophe, right? And so, you know, to activate people. And, and definitely the latter is one of my goals, but I really sensed you know, I, I think I, I think my film is in many ways a response to the pressure to be hopeful. Mm -hmm. And that I saw this as a flaw. That actually it felt to me to be a tremendous relief to actually just surrender to the truth. And so instead of succumbing to this pressure of needing to present 
the climate catastrophe in some sort of light that it could be managed or that you know things are going to be okay i just really wanted people to have permission to feel deeply the crises the catastrophe the the magnitude of what it is we're facing so for me there were no films doing that um, which isn't to say i wasn't inspired by other people making um, climate change related films but i think mine is very different in terms of its exploration of hope in a more nuanced way like i'm not saying don't have hope and especially you know don't give up your hope if you have it i'm just saying you know if we have hope let's let's make that authentic as opposed to a form of denial in and of itself. So I think just to wrap that this up, it's really that I recognized the relief and the catharsis that comes from surrendering to the truth. And I wasn't going to succumb to the pressure, you know, to be hopeful because that's what a documentary is supposed to be. Surprisingly, though, many people post-watching Magnitude find it hopeful and find it cathartic in a strange sort of way. And I, I think it really is just because it is so much energy to push the truth away. What, you know, and people are doing that at varying degrees. And I have amazing compassion for people that are doing that. I'm doing that myself just to cope sometimes, of course. I mean, the scale and violence, as I've said before, is just so difficult to come to terms with. But it is a tremendous relief to put that pushing away down and to just find the strength and courage to look towards what is coming in our direction. So I think that is, if I'm going to summarize, sort of what I was trying to do with this film that, that is different from any other climate film, at least that I've seen. It's wonderful. Um, Rob, you already said the magic word, one of the words I was going to ask. The title of the film being The Magnitude of All Things. Question for both of you. Could the title of this film have been Solastalgia or Psychoterratica or another word I'm not even familiar with that kind of says what the film is about using one of these new words that otherwise we didn't have before realizing what the climate crisis is? I think the, the title's perfect because it's, um, you know, it's accessible, but it's also, it really just, it sums up that complexity. Like there are the things that Jen mentioned, hope's very complicated. And Jen mentioned, you know, that a lot of people found it cathartic and I, I most definitely did. And I think for me, it felt a bit like a funnel because I kind of thought I was sort of grappling with my climate grief before coming into this film. Um, but I think, you know, just being given that time, which was, which I look back on as being quite precious now to be able to go into a studio up the road from where I live and sit there for 12 to 15 hours you know really just sort of going into this zone of the music and and feeling those very raw emotions that to me meant something very personal not to mention that my own father who died of cancer a few years before so there was that element to feeding into it that process of being allowed to grieve and allowed to kind of sit in that experience for a long time for, for me for you know quite a few months of in, in and out of the studio for these very intense moments that was very cathartic and coming out the other end i feel I think it is a, it's a weird experience. I won't say I'm, you know, I'm, I'm now I've got all this hope. I've, I've just got a different sort of degree of strength that I don't think I had prior to going into it. So um, I think that's hopefully what people might get from watching it too. 
Jen, does that uh, that question make any sense, or should I do a, oh, a sure. reframe? Absolutely, it makes sense. And actually, I had the privilege and honor of spending a couple of days with um, Glenn Albrecht as well, and filming with him. And actually, he all, you know, unfortunately, we have to cut sequences that didn't deal directly with our subject, but he was so strong and had so many wonderful things to say. That was a very difficult cut to make. But yeah, so I don't I don't think it could have been called solastalgia because that's just one element to me. Because, you know, for me, the reason I wanted to call it the magnitude of all things is because that's really what we're talking about. And it's, it's really difficult to to even consider. Right. And the two parallel narratives, one is is coming to terms with my sister's death and her coming to terms with her own death. But 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 as humans, we are impermanent. And yes, we live in a death denying culture. We also push our own mortality and the truth of our impermanence away. But it's natural that we die. Everyone dies. Our, our beloveds die. That's sort of natural. Wherein to be in this moment in time where due to human activity, we are ending the world as we know it, that's an anomaly. I mean, one can say, and certainly I've heard and spoken, learned a great deal from indigenous people uh, in terms of colonization. And, and that also was similar in the sense that it was the end of the world as they knew it and equally as catastrophic. But for most people who are not indigenous and do not have that history, we have not ever encountered this before. And it is not natural. I mean, it's natural in the sense that humans are part of nature. And of course, this is all tautological and we could dis dissect it to no end. But I'm going to go out on a limb and say, this is not natural. You know, for, for my children, and, and by the way, I, I, I don't, just because I have children, that's not why I care. De I care deeply, obviously, about my children, but I care about all children, and I care about non-human animal children, too. Um, and I, I don't like that per myopic perspective that we just want to protect the earth for our own children. But that, that my children, who I know so directly, have to, have to grow up knowing that. And because I'm their mom, they especially know it well, sadly. <laughs> um, you know, that they have to come to terms with that reality is, is just so, um, so not natural. And uh, so, so that's, you know, I think that's, that, that's all a, a long answer to why ultimately I settled on the magnitude of all things. The other title, um, there's a few other titles. One was Death Shines a Light. That was a title for a while. Another was The Air That Breathes Us. That was another title for a while. But anyway, there's some, ins not very many people know that. <laughs> That's great. Uh, I love getting those those little nuggets, <laughs> behind the scenes things. You also answered a another question I was about to ask, and that is the the cancer metaphor seems to be so universal now. I mean, like like everyone knows someone who has either died from or or luckily survived or you know is going through now cancer, and it seems to be just so relatable and so powerful, and we can understand as individuals that oh this level of grief is is immense and just you know 
can you not see why we shouldn't feel that level of grief about what's going on to the natural world? If you have this level of grief, uh, grief about a person, about a just implacable, horrific thing, what about this other implacable, horrific thing? But that metaphor, do you see any like gaps or any problems with it for yourself personally when you're thinking about climate change? How well does the climate change is like cancer for the planet metaphor work for you? If I reflect on my experience going through the, my dad passing away over a four-month period with pancreatic cancer, that process was interesting for me because my dad had spent a lot of his life reading about death, you know, being really interested in it and very spiritual about it. But getting towards the end, I think there was that moment of shifting from an intellectual to an emotional experience of it that many people in this point in time I feel are happening that's happening to them in terms of climate change as well so it's that shift from understanding it on a scientific level to shifting to okay this is what we're facing and this is this is what it means for all the things that i love and so you you know everyone has reactions to that and i think it's you know it's it's a good metaphor because it's the same as way um it's that uncertainty we we think you know there's aspects of it that that are terminal There, there are aspects of it that we can fight for and we've got to kind of got to balance the fighting for something versus the accepting of something as well. So it's a good it's a good metaphor, I think. Yeah, well said. I think I agree with all of that. Of course, I think uh, Uncle Kevin Taggart says it in the film very well. You know, he himself even describes the open pit mining in his Wanarua country, as you know, it's a big, great big cancer eating eating away our country. It's interesting too the whole thing around. There's a lot of cancers, as we know. I mean, it's very difficult to prove the source of the cancer. I think that's part of the problem in terms of eliminating some of the environmental chemicals um, that, say, cause cancer. But, you know, there is an element of some cancers which are also human-caused, and, and so I think there's, there's that element as well. But, but ultimately, I think for me, where the analogy breaks down is what I was referencing before. And that is, you know, as human beings, we know we're impermanent. We know everybody around us is impermanent. And it's, it's natural at some point to have to let go of either our own lives or, or those we love. Uh, and I think that you know, what I have experienced with some people that are extremely close to me that have had cancer, including, of course, my sister, but also my Zen teacher, um, right now he has cancer. And for both my sister and my Zen teacher, and my Zen teacher is, is still with us and thriving and doing very well, but he relayed a story the other day about just this sublime moment that he had where he was just laughing hysterically and said out loud, oh, I wish everyone would ha could have cancer, just in terms of the insight that he, it has given him and the, and the, love, the love of life and the uh, appreciation of every single moment. And my sister was similarly that way in the sense that, you know, it's, it's, I mean, we all know we're going to die, but sometimes it takes a terminal diagnosis to, to really, really at the deepest level of our being know that. And then for many people, especially those who have done a lot of personal work in their lives, 
that brings out their best, right? And, and, and that almost transports them into this larger field of being that I think many of us crave to be in. And, and I've witnessed that with my sister and my Zen teacher and their extraordinary feelings of interconnection with all life. I don't know if you experienced that with your dad, Rob. Anyway, sometimes there's these gifts, you know, a journey like facing a cancer diagnosis. And then there's similarly, there can be gifts related to facing the climate crisis, but I would really say they're different. And I say this in the film, um, you know, instead of, of um, like in terms of the climate crisis, I think what it's showing humanity is what we've missed if we had stopped looked, looking forward and looked around, right? I think that it's really exposing the flaws of the modernity project, this idea that things are always going to get better and better and better, that humans are not one animal among many who all have the will to live, as Albert Schweitzer says, but rather, you know, we're on the top of this hierarchy and everything in this world is for us. So, you know, I think climate change really, like cancer can sort of, in, the, in its best, and I don't want to idealize this because obviously there's tremendous suffering that accompanies it, but cancer at its best can give us the gift of extreme presence. And I think climate change can do that, but it's very, it's got this tragic, tragic side to it in the sense that it's really showing us humanity and in particular you know western those who are within the western neoliberal world but i'll go back farther and not only blame western neoliberals there's others to blame too but our flaws our deep 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 flaws about and our misconceptions of what we thought we were as humans and and there's a great deal of um sadness i find and regret that comes from that awareness in the sense that you know wow if only we had been able to see this earlier because it's too i think maybe it's part part of it is that it's too late to stop entirely it's not too late to turn things around it, in some ways it's not too late to stop the most catastrophic of the predictions but as we well know, climate catastrophe is baked into the system. Yeah, we so, don't have to fall down the whole staircase, but we are down at least a few steps. We are down, I would say, more than a few steps. <laughs> but anyway, though, I, I I hope that was clear. But for me, there's there's very there's a lot of differences between um, facing cancer and facing climate change. Can I just add? I mean, I think I liked what you said about it bringing you know bringing you into this sort of real presence. And that happened to me. I really experienced that through my dad's experience and just being really, you know, hyper aware of my senses like I'd never sort of been before. You know, I was noticing wind in the leaves of the trees and how the light was coming into the room and everything sort of slowed down. And it be, and it's sort of, you know, a lot of that has stayed with me, I think, post that. And I think also it's a similar experience, I think, going through facing up to climate grief. You start to become much more observant about where you live and, and noticing 
all these things around you and the systems of, that are working around you as well and and that creates that can feed into a sense of strength because it can give you a renewed sense of love about you know what you're where you live and and what you're a part of um and and yeah i guess as jen mentioned that that has a, a big bag of loss that comes with it as well but i think it's also a source of strength or as you say in the film you know a sense of rapture that you can get from that sort of mindset or attitude so many other questions i could ask i was really hoping to to use this opportunity to kind of put on a bit of a a master class for for filmmakers and composers but not being a filmmaker not a composer myself i don't know exactly what messages they need to hear so i guess i'm going to ask you a, a closing question after this next one and that closing question will be you know what advice would you give you know yourself as a filmmaker you know at the start of your career jen or 10 years ago or you know to someone who's just starting out like we obviously need a lot more climate engaged film but to kind of turn from the climate talk how do they make the best film they can make that actually moves people's hearts and minds and i've got another quick follow-up question i really want to ask before i get into the other stuff which is um seaspiracy on netflix as you know become quite controversial by making big big claims and most of them are right and a few of them are wrong and it created a furor you've got films like dominion that have led to road takeovers by some you know call them vegans others call them you know anti-animal cruelty advocates it seems like a lot of films in this area measure their success or try to become successful by directly courting or stirring controversy magnitude doesn't do that why well i mean as a filmmaker i feel it's imperative to well actually it's interesting because your two questions in some ways are are related to me um but well, for one, because oh, no, they were the best. <laughs> okay, I can. So, in terms of controversy, for me, I just make films about what I feel are the most pressing social, political, and environmental issues of the day. And I, you know, at the root, the root sort of motivation I have in all my films is to make the familiar strange. So, I, I like to look at things that are socially constructed and expose their construction because that ultimately means that we can reconstruct it. And so if you look at the corporation, the two corporation films, they're very much there. And so while like I can look at, I mean, the corporation films are, um, you know, there's a lot of sort of facts in there, right? Uh, but absolutely imperative that we research and um, present only what we know to be true because Otherwise, I just think you lose your credibility. And so, you know, it's not my intention to stir up controversy for the sake of controversy. My intention is to, you know, with magnitude, it's really to share an authentic reflections about a very difficult moment in time and my grappling with this moment in time the best way I can so I think maybe for me like you know Michael Moore is somebody that loves to stir up controversy and get attention that way uh, and it's just not my style and it's not my meta motivation and it's not it's not very Canadian <laughs> we're all, I'm laughing because because uh it's 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 you know in North America it's it's very sort of American 
not Canadian. It's maybe New Zealand and Australia has a similar dynamic. Anyway, I don't know. Did you want to answer the controversy question, Rob? Or... <laughs> uh, I don't know if it really applies to, to music and my role in this, but I think, um, yeah, I think it's a, there, there is a, you know, an element of controversy about this film in the sense that it is confronting something that people want to push away. So there's that controversy that I can imagine um, is there. And I think it's probably, it'd be interesting, I think, to see how this film lands with people who aren't already engaged with it. And, you know, thinking about that spectrum of the six Americas or the seven Americas, six Australias, whatever it is, um, you know, how that falls down the line of the alarmed and all those other categories. But I think there's, uh, yeah, I think it's, it's more subtle than, than those other films you mentioned. Yeah, there's definitely that element that some filmmakers, you know, they, like Michael Moore, they're they're making a film for a purpose. It's because of a a social injustice that they see they want to correct. And so, you know, being a bit of a showman and causing some controversy as a promotional vehicle for the film, you know, they would justify it as because I'm doing a stunt or I'm saying something that might be close to being fact-checkable uh, is going to result in more people seeing the film, therefore more social good, potentially. How well, I actually think it's it's wrong. I think it's the opposite. I think you need to be... Like, for example, Human Rights Watch just fact-checked um, the new corporation for us, and they, they, we, they had us in a panel in London, and they wouldn't profile our film until they fact-checked it. And I think that when you you present like um cowspiracy was another one which had some which wasn't completely um authentic like it, there was some things in there that were just plain wrong and i think you just really undermine your credibility and for I me i have to ask how did you score oh we passed we totally passed <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah but you know uh, my my motivation is also correcting injustice I, I just don't see the world you see i can't do it that way because i don't see the world in black and white right for me there's just these infinite shades of gray and i can just go down every um white to black saturation rabbit hole so, you know so like i don't yeah. i think that people that like some people just see the world black and white and, and, and that works well in today's media landscape for a lot of people. Uh, but that's not the way I see the world. And I don't really appreciate media like that. I don't find it to be that respectful of the viewer. I, you know, it can be manipulative. There's you know, no I loved the octopus teacher. That's a film I loved lately is the octopus teacher. Mm. And I just found that to be so beautiful, such a beautiful poetic reflection of the relationship between humanity and the non-human world, and and so subtle. And uh, anyway, that that's sort of more my style, as you can tell. <laughs> so um, I guess to make it kind of tangible for the potential filmmaker or composer out there is like, do you find yourself? composing music for the villain in the film you know is this the point of the film where the head of the nra is going to come out and you're going to grab the the clip of him and you know rob it's your job to put something dark and ominous under this guy you know to show just how villainous he is that that is lacking in magnitude it is a collection of people all come to terms with something horrific and ex inexorable and that that's what it is what magnitude's taught me maybe about composing is that just sort of trusting your own, you know, experience of something and being allowed to kind of 
go into the music in a in a way where you're just sort of pausing a lot of the other insecurities or intellectual concerns you might have about making music for a film because I think that can be quite big for composers is that this sort of comparison with others or you know comparison with the industry and thinking about things in a in a musical way and it can kind of really get in the way of actually just accessing that part of yourself that you want to be able to access to make music um and that's really hard to get to but I think this doing this film was such a great opportunity for me because it was so nicely dovetailing these two areas of my life together um but I think I, I've been listening to a lot of David White, the, the Irish poet, who I think lives in your part of the world, Jen, and and he's written a really nice essay called Close, and it's about you know always always being close to something, being close to being done, being close to happiness, being close to, and I think it's a nice sort of thing to reflect on when you're making art like this, is that you 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 can get sort of caught up in trying to make something perfect or or sort of being, you know, um, I think as a composer more broadly, this is really good ethic to have is just just to do stuff get things out there and and not ang be too you know worried about every little detail in that piece of music so that's just the way that i operate and my advice but you know <laughs> i've never listened to anyone else's advice so don't take mine <laughs> <laughs> and on that note let's give some advice um <laughs> so but but genuinely uh, people are going to watch this film people who want to be filmmakers who want to be composers and this film is going to inspire them. And this might be the reason that they decide to make a film about the climate crisis than about another topic. Um, and I, I'm sorry it's overly broad. I'm sorry for you in being asked this question. I'm sorry for them. I can't give them the space to you know, learn something more specific. But you know, maybe for your, you know, if you were starting over your career with knowing what's going on in the world now, like how would you get going in this space to hopefully do something productive and constructive about climate change in this art? Yes, that's a, that is a hard question, but, and I, I hope this is in some ways satisfying. I'm not sure it will be, but like for myself, for example, with the magnitude of all things, pitching this film about climate change and cancer. You know, it was like, are you kidding me? <laughs> and uh, and because it's different for writing a book, like books can be depressing and there's no pressure to have a book that's hopeful. But a, a film, a documentary film especially is supposed to be hopeful. So I think what I would just say is, you know, don't just, Joseph, very Joseph Campbell, you know, just follow your bliss, you know, trust yourself. And, and, and what, what story do you want to tell more than anything, you know, and, and you have to have, well, I'll tell you one little anecdote. When I was making my first feature documentary, A Cow at My Table, and that took me five years. And I emerged from that film less than 100 pounds. Uh, I mean, I'm not a huge person anyway, but that's very skinny for me uh, because, you know, I worked so hard. I was hardly eating. It was a, it was at early days of nonlinear um, systems and it took forever to render just the smallest thing. But I would literally say once this film is released, I could die because my my life would have meant something. Now, I didn't want to die. I just, I was, and I was being a little hyperbolic, I'll admit. But, but, you know, I do think you have to have that level of commitment because it is very hard on so many levels, just in terms of all of the hurdles that you're going to run up against. So, so you have to have 
that belief and that commitment and that urge to tell this story, to correct this injustice, to get the truth out, to, to, ref, to uh, urge viewers to reflect deeply, to, to inspire viewers to be everything they can be. You have to have that desire to make it, I think. Um, so I think that's what I would say is, is just trust yourself and, and, and go deeply within and, and discover the story you want to tell uh, more than anything that, that you will feel once it's told your life has been worthwhile. <laughs> So there you go. <laughs> That's uh, sorry, sounding very grandiose, I think, but I, I really do feel like you have to have that level of determination. You know, what your show is sort of all about as well is there's the real pressing need for artists to be engaging in this space just because it accesses many, you know, so many different aspects of ourselves in trying to confront what we face compared to, you know, we've, we've, we've had many years of trying to do it through science and through other forms of communication, but to really have these lasting impacts. And I like the octopus teacher as an example from Jen, because it's that style where something can have that, you know, real subtle, but longer lasting impact than say something that rouses you up and fires you up into hitting the streets. I think that's a, a short term hit really, um, compared to these more deeper emotional changes that can happen from being, you know, experiencing someone that's really poured everything into making climate engaged art. So yeah, I highly recommend getting into it. <laughs> yeah. And actually I, I'll just, I'll just point to the book, um, the great derangement by Amitav Ghosh, which is, it's a time, it's a small little book. I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it, it speaks about literature and really he is asking the question, like given what's happening in the world, why, why is not every piece of literature in some ways addressing this subject? And, and I, I think that that is a, you know, given just the, this, the magnitude again, sorry, of, of this crisis, it's, it's sort of a little bit um, perplexing why not every piece of art or not every, um, film or every book, even, and it, of course it can be in an intersectional way with other issues. Like, you know, why are not more people grappling with these issues and, and reflecting on them in, mm. in the work that they're creating? Cause it's really just a tiny fragment of, of what's being created. Yeah. I just think that's a good point. The, the intersectional aspects of it are really important. So it's not just, you know, tackling it head on. It's all the, all the ways in which it, in, you know, is embedded through all these other things and, and teasing that out and bringing that to light. Can I ask a potentially prickly question or thorny question? It's not intended to be, but in the middle of making Magnitude, you made the sequel to Corporation, New Corporation. Did New Corporation speak to the climate crisis as, you know, as a symptom of our economic model? Of, oh, of, absolutely, yes. yes. Wonderful. And yeah. so did, and it also um, did the same with COVID. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. And that was absolutely vital and important um, that we did that. You've both been so wonderful. I'm going to have a nice outro summary to wrap it all up at the end. I'll record after going over the tape and sort of assembling a 30, 40 minute episode out of this gen very, very generous hour and 20 minutes you've given me. Thank you so much. Oh, you're very welcome. It was really, really nice to it was so great to see see you again, Rob. Yeah, you too.
and here we are together at the outro. Uh, just so you know, to break this fourth wall, I'm recording this outro now before I go back and record the intro to this episode. So when you hear this, uh, know that I'm about to go back and record the intro in just a second, and I will be working out as I go what I'm about to say. Um, having just listened back to the entire recording, going from an hour and 20 minutes down to the hour, know that um, I have such respect for what Jen does as an editor, going from 400 hours of tape down to a feature-length documentary. It's a skill set that I'm sure takes a long time to build, and it's a muscle that, once developed, is um, very valuable, because it is hard to develop. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. I hope that the poignant moments about talking about cancer as a metaphor for climate change and talking about grief and climate change and talking about how we can make compelling media about climate was of interest and of value potentially to you. I hope if you're listening to this as a potential budding filmmaker or composer that you take something from this and you you take it and you run with it and that I'm talking to you one day if I'm lucky this was great to do uh, I just want to thank Rob and Jen so much for this Rob for setting this all up you know it was Rob who reached out to me to ask me if I wanted to do this and um yeah <laughs> I really really did I think this was easily the best chat that I've ever been a part of in this space and um, I'm really humbled by getting to do it I can't wait to bring you a Art Breaker version of this episode where I trim it down from this hour down to 30 or 40 minutes coupled with some of Rob's amazing music from the film coupled with some more clips from the film uh, that's going to be really 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 special and if you have any skills in the editing department, or if you'd like to be part of that process, please do just drop me a line at hello at climactic.fm. But until then, until we release that episode, look out for any chance you might get to see the magnitude of all things. I can't recommend highly enough that you go out and see it, or potentially stay in and see it, if that's the option. Um, whatever way in which you can see it, see it. This is truly the first kind of cinematic experience we've had in the climate space, and, and sure, there is amazing shots in uh, Before the Flood, the Leonardo DiCaprio documentary, but this is a another breed. This is something else. So thank you again to Jen and to Rob, and until next time, take care of each other, and stay safe in these climactic times. The Climactic Collective This show is produced by Hear Media, a boutique audio agency in Narm, Melbourne. To learn more and get in touch, head to hearmedia.studio. That's H-E-R-E media.studio. Media.